Hello and welcome to this week's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm joined by Christopher Wright, who's Head of ESG Risk Monitoring at Norges Bank Investment Management, NBIM. Christopher, good morning. Thank you for coming all the way over to join us this morning. It's an absolute pleasure to meet you, pleasure to see you. Why don't we start at the beginning? Many, many people here in London, in England, will know about Norges. They'll have seen some of the huge deals you've done in real estate. They'll have seen some of the huge deals you've done in the equities markets over the years. Tell us a little bit about the history of the fund, when it was set up in the early 90s, and your role within MBIM over the last 11 years. Sure. Thanks for that. So if we take the history quickly, Norway found oil in 1969, and has, uh, you know, since then built up considerable wealth from its oil and gas investments in the North Sea. In 1990, Parliament established the fund, which is known as the Government Pension Fund of Norway. And the first inflow was in 1996. The fund is managed by the central bank. It's owned by the ministry and key decisions are anchored in Parliament. So it's really owned by the Norwegian people. It's a sovereign fund for future generations of Norwegians. Hmm. It's worth about a trillion pounds, which is... Considerable, right? So it's been growing consistently since 1996. It was fortuitous that we established the fund at the time. The oil price has been high generally in that period, and equity markets have done very well. So this Mm. has obviously contributed to the size of the fund today. And you've expanded your allocation to equities over that period, haven't you? Right. So it started with a pure bond portfolio, and then over time we've expanded the allocation to equities, and currently it's at 70%. And quite convenient that you did that just after the financial crisis. So yeah, impeccable so, timing. Impeccable timing. We could not foresee basically the growth of the equity markets in the next 10 years after the crisis, but that has helped us considerably. And in terms of real estate, that makes up roughly 30% when you're looking at unlisted property, doesn't it? Real estate accounts for about 2.5% of the fund, right? 30 billion pounds. We started investing in real estate in 2010 on the unlisted side and have grown, built a portfolio that is concentrated in office retail investments in US and Europe and uh, Japan. And we also have uh, considerable investments in logistics. Yeah, yeah. So your role now is working across the organization, but you've come from a real estate background, haven't you? So that's the journey that you've been on at MBIM over the last 11 years. Yeah, so the fund got a mandate from Parliament to invest in real estate in 2010. And so we built up an unlisted portfolio, uh, as we mentioned, during that time period. Our first investment was the 25% stake in Regent Street, which is probably our most famous investment, certainly here in the UK. It's a partnership with the Crown Estate. And so when we built the organization, gradually, we also added a lot of staff, of course, and I was brought over as with with many other people from the equity side to support the real estate business. And so I built up the sustainability function in our unlisted real estate department. And what's the approach that you take, given you're owned by Central Bank, which obviously places different considerations upon you than a traditional investor might have? How are you thinking differently about some of these things? And how has your thinking around ESG evolved over the last decade or so? Being in a central bank, we come from a culture of kind of index near investment. And that's also the investment strategy of the fund is to invest close to index and with low transaction costs. So unlisted investments don't fit readily into that model. Yeah. But we have some investments in the unlisted space. 
We have been very selective in how we invest. So we've only selected the best partners in each of our markets that have kind of deep capital, they have proven records, they are professional, reputable, and they are basically worthy of investing our money and the people's money. We've also been concentrating on what we call uh, global gateway cities that we think have high potential because of growth, because of influx of people, uh, technology. There's some natural supply constraints in those markets. Yeah. And which, which cities are they? So we have four cities in the US, yeah. uh, Boston, New York, DC, San Francisco, London, Paris, Berlin, and Europe, and then Tokyo. Yeah. And then, of course, our logistics portfolio is much more geographically diversified in US and Europe. And that's the joint venture with Prologis. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of where you're seeing things like retail now, I mean, Regent Street is an example, right? It's obviously been hit by COVID over the last couple of years. How are you viewing some of those traditional core asset classes of real estate now and thinking about A, how you create value from them and B, how you ensure that they're compliant with some of the incoming legislation and regulation around climate? Right. So in terms of different real estate sectors, we were very early to enter logistics, which has served us well. On the retail side, we focused on high street retail in prime cities because we believe they have lower risk and will sustain value over time. So a lot of the locations we have, so Regent Street in London, Champs-Élysées in France, for example, there are a lot of flagship stores. There's just a different dynamic than the rest of the retail space. In terms of regulations, we have a commitment to invest in kind of green features in our buildings. We think all of our cities are characterized by populations that are interested in green spaces, occupiers that look for green buildings to offer their employees. A lot of the cities are technology driven. So that basically makes green real estate an important issue for us. Yeah, yeah. And that shapes how we acquire buildings and it shapes how we manage them. And what does that look like then in terms of the buildings that you're acquiring? Are you focusing just on top-rated A-grade buildings or are you taking the view that because we could take a long-term view on any kind of deal, we're able to pick up brown assets, fix them up, refurbish them, mitigate any additional carbon spend by not having to build something from scratch and actually contribute positively in that way? So we have a long-term investment horizon, right? And therefore, these issues might be more important to us than the average investor. We don't have a deliberate strategy to buy brown and convert to green, but when we do buy assets and we see there is a renovation coming up or a cycle coming up, we do look at the green profile of the asset currently and where it needs to be in 10, 15, 20 years. And that's included in the design and the capital budgeting. So we see these issues becoming more and more important. And therefore, when we do renovate, we have to take that into account. And I can get back to how we do that. Yeah, yeah. And thinking about measuring risk then, what does that entail both at an organizational level, thinking across the whole fund and then thinking about just the real estate element? Because it's obviously quite different, isn't it? The way that you might be measuring the performance of, uh, I don't know, of a, of a company in which you have a large stake versus a portfolio of actual warehouses somewhere. Right. If we think of the climate issue, a large equity holding we are an index near investor. So we are long-term owners. We are active owners, which means we engage the companies we own. And risk for us is if companies are unable to transition to a lower carbon economy that we believe is coming, right? So yeah, we have a, yeah. a commitment, for example, that all companies should set net zero targets 
and be transparent about that and also have short medium term targets and then align their capital investments with those targets. So we see risk if companies are unable to make that transition. On the real estate side, it's similar. If we look at the energy and carbon performance of a building, if it's underperforming the local market and there are benchmarks that we can use to assess that, we think it carries additional risk. We see that in most of our cities that we invest, there are or there will be coming energy performance standards that set requirements for buildings Mm -hmm. and that might even fine landlords that don't comply. Tenants have set their own net zero targets and are looking to lease space in buildings that help them meet those targets. So there are a lot of trends in the market that are driving the whole market towards green real estate. What do you do where data that you'd ideally need isn't there? So you talk about benchmarking to local markets, but there just isn't really that much data really about post-occupational performance of buildings. We have a lot of certificates around single point in time, but we don't really have anything that says this building constructed in 2010 is performing in this way. Yeah, and that is the real weakness in the market, that when you acquire a building in the acquisition process, even, and this is in the, you know, remember we we invest in kind of prime buildings, prime locations with the most professional market participants. Yeah. Even there, you could find buildings where they don't have, are not able to share historical energy data on the building. So it's actually very difficult to assess the energy profile of a building at the time of acquisition. That remains a problem. But you see, increasingly now when we do deals, you see that there is a, when we ask for that data, it no longer comes as a surprise. Others have also asked for it. So I think this will gradually change in the market as these regulations come out. And this is an expectation and growing expectation in the market. Yeah, yeah. So you were talking a little bit before, Christopher, about transition risk. What does that look like? How do you work with different businesses in the wider fund? And then how are you looking at adapting some of those same techniques within a real estate environment? Right. So our large investments, our core equity holdings are backed by fundamental research that we do in-house, right? And that's looking at the dynamics within a sector's pricing outlook, fundamentals, and understanding how climate transition risk plays into that. Yeah. So when we talk to companies, it's very much trying to understand how they are adapting to the environment in their sector and the potential for carbon pricing, for new green technologies to emerge. What does that mean? Is that a sense of stress testing, how they perform under certain scenarios of carbon pricing, for example? From or, a, it, or are you simply saying, actually, that we're not going to touch mining, we're not going to touch tobacco, we're not going to touch... No, I mean, we don't divest from sectors outright, apart from those uh, that I mentioned earlier that the Council on Ethics has looked at, like the typical you know, tobacco, firearms exclusions. But in, in terms of the broader economy, we want to be invested globally in all sectors, right? This is a fundamental principle of the fund. Yeah. And so we are focused on that the companies do the best they can within their sector and manage these risks systematically and report on it transparently to the market. Mm. So, of course, there are sectors that have higher exposure to climate risk than others, and we'll pay attention to those. And what principal things, then, can the real estate sector be doing to manage some of these risks? So thinking from your own experience and, and what you do as a fund, what are some of the things emerging that you think could benefit people? So I would say the first is to invest in data technology, This is, as you mentioned earlier, a major obstacle to doing anything, right? You have to be able to measure 
your energy and carbon, ideally on a real-time basis, at low cost and make that information available to everybody in the organization that needs access to it. And that's actually much more complicated than you think. And there's a lot of movement in the market there. And secondly, I think if you're investing in the space that we invest in, renovations become really, really important. You want to kind of future-proof your investments through periodic renovations. So when you do upgrade buildings, you need to make sure that they are commercially attractive through the next cycle. And now markets are changing more than ever. So, you know, what used to be kind of a green building two, three years ago is no longer a cutting edge building. And we see that it's changing rapidly and that increases the risk that buildings kind of lose their attractiveness mid-cycle. And that's obviously a, a risk to us. Yeah. And one of the things that you've been involved with is the carbon risk real estate monitor, CREM, which is an open source platform to help people with science-based reporting. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? I'm always a little bit, uh, always a bit anxious about long acronyms. So yeah. uh, this is why I'd like you to sort of explain what it means for people, because lots of people at this point, you say CREM and everyone goes to sleep. Absolutely. So it started out as an academic project funded by the European Union. And the purpose was to develop decarbonization pathways for different real estate sectors in EU countries. That was the original purpose. It was backed then by two Dutch funds, APG, PGGM. And we, NBIM, came on board when they wanted to expand that work to non-EU countries. And obviously the EU wouldn't fund that, so they needed some other source of funding. Yeah. As you said, it's science-based and the methodology documents are public. The carbonization pathways themselves are public and provided to the market at no cost. And that's an important principle for us in supporting it. So the idea is that now that everyone is committing to net zero, you need to have some tool to assess whether an asset is aligned with net zero. So you have to define what net zero means for a particular asset. And what they have done is broken it down into markets and property types. So for example, they have a pathway for UK logistics that is based on the current logistics market in the UK, the current carbon and energy intensity of that market, and the evolution of the stock of UK logistics until 2050, mm. and the kind of an allocation of the declining carbon budget to that stock. And so you can then derive a decarbonization pathway that you can use for asset planning. So you so, know... So it gives you essentially, it will give you an average utility usage for such a building. That's correct. And of course, there are a lot of moving parts here. This is a forward-looking metric, 30 years ahead, right? Imagine if we would do this in 1990, would we be able to predict what 2020 would look like? It's, well, it's... quite, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is not easy. And it's my sense is that it's uh, the way I view it is that it's the best estimate that we can do currently. And it's a useful risk management tool insofar as you believe that markets are moving towards kind of a, a one and a half degree or two degree compliant setting then these pathways will be what you have to relate to. And therefore, they can be used for, for example, I mentioned these renovation plans. If you're renovating a building today, you can look at the pathway and you can identify what should the energy intensity of that building be in 15 years. And that can be used to kind of spec your design plans and set your ambitions. Yeah. So what are the sorts of interventions then that you're asking people to do? So when you're working with your JV partners in real estate or when you're working with companies across the world that you've got shareholdings in. Can you give us a couple of examples of interventions that Norges has requested from those parties? 
Sure. And I can mention the Crown Estate as an example. So Regent Street is, as I mentioned, is one of our main real estate investments in the UK. As you know, in the last 10 years since we partnered with the Crown on Regent Street, there have been multiple renovations on the street. And they have developed their approach to renovations in that time period. The things that they focus on is that sustainability becomes part of the renovation project from the beginning. Yeah. And that is a really important point. If you only address this at the very end, you can kind of make changes at the margins. If you want to really integrate this into renovation planning, you have to get the people involved much earlier. So that's one. And then the other is, of course, that you set a high certification target for all the renovations. And that kind of concentrates people's minds. It drives the process and you know where you're going to end up. So those are kind of two things that you can, when we discuss renovation plans with our partners, those are kind of the things that we would focus on. Yeah. And, and what about more broadly in a non-real estate context? How does Norges work? Because again, just to explain it, you're almost index linked in that you're removing companies that don't comply with the ethics committee. So you're looking at the global equities index on an index linked basis, yeah. but without those companies in. Yeah. So what do you then do to the companies that aren't complying or aren't managing that risk effectively? So the first, of course, is we monitor the portfolio and identify companies that are not complying. And when you say complying, there are no kind of hard rules. What we have done is issued what we call expectations in different categories. So we have a document that spells out, for example, our expectations of company around climate change strategy, around water management, around corruption, biodiversity, human rights, etc., so those are public documents that we share with boards of companies. Mm. So they know what we expect of them as a major shareholder. And then, of course, we look particularly at their corporate reporting. And in general, we ask them to go from what we call words to numbers, right? So the reporting should be more and more specific. It should be follow international standards. And it should be concrete in what their plans are. And so right now, we have a strong focus on net zero targets and plans. And we're going to you know, scrutinize those much more going forward given how important this issue is in the market. Yeah. And that global reporting piece is obviously, I mean, that's the silver bullet to all of this stuff, right? Having clear, comparable numbers from different territories. And some would argue that given the platform that Norges has alongside other big global investors, this is something where you guys could clearly make a huge and very positive impact to just bring everybody forward. What steps are being made there to achieve some clarity, really, on having clear, comparable metrics. Yeah, so I I think we can start with the TCFD, right? The Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. That was a big step. So explain what that is and why it's a big step, just for people that... So that, you know, this was a task force set up by Mark Carney and Michael Bloomberg based on the premise that in order for the market to price climate risk efficiently, there needed to be standardized disclosure from companies. So they set up a framework you know, that looked at governance strategy, risk management metrics and targets that uh, identified key disclosures that were expected of companies. And since then, a number of countries have made this mandatory. And we have also called for the TCFD reporting to become mandatory in the markets we invest. We think this will contribute to standardization. and, And exactly what you said, if you're a global investor, it's really important that you can compare numbers between companies in different markets. It's kind of obvious. So, and once the market is able to do comparisons, 
this will be much easier to price. And you will get that reaction from the market that you kind of uh, hope for. And do you foresee a time where you will essentially just be divesting of companies whose numbers don't stack up? Right. So, I mean, our primary tool is engagement. We will remain owners in most companies we invest in. But what we have said is that if engagement fails over time and we don't see the company being able to manage the transition risk appropriately, then divestment can be an option under yeah. certain circumstances. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and these are divestments in this case would be that we sell our holdings, but the companies will remain in the ministry's benchmark, which means that we would run relative risk to the benchmark. So it's essentially an investment decision. It's a short in a way. Yeah. So that can become a possibility, but, but, but that's it's a, not so our... it's a last resort. Though, it right? is absolutely our, yeah, our last resort. Yeah. And just bringing it back then to real estate, this is obviously a challenge that many people are looking at here where faced with regulation change and potentially legislative change, companies are going to be looking potentially at dumping brown assets and only focusing on the top rated ones. Well, that could be counterproductive, couldn't it? Right. It depends on your perspective. Um, well, from an environmental perspective, if the outcome we want right. is to save the planet, then let's focus on that. Right. So you could foresee a scenario where the most responsible owners end up owning all the responsible companies and the irresponsible companies are owned by irresponsible owners, right? So you have a fragmentation in the market. Yeah. So that is a possibility. We invest within a financial mandate. So we have no direct explicit mandate to invest for impact. Yeah, and, well, and no company really does. I mean, this is something we've been talking about with people here actually the last few weeks, but this concept of morality is a bit of a fiction when yeah. it comes to companies. Yeah, I mean... In my view, anyway. <laughs> exactly. And, and of course, what is moral and not is not necessarily... Uh, you know, people don't agree <laughs> across different markets. So these are difficult challenges. Our view is that we look at risk and return from a financial perspective. In some cases these overlap, right? So you, you could invest for impact and you can invest for financial returns and you could actually end up doing the same things. In other cases, there is a bit of a trade-off. When we do divestment decisions, it is, I would say, a mix of both financial objectives and reputational risk objectives. There are certain business models that we just do not think are sustainable over the long term because yeah. they generate large externalities to society. And that could be, for example companies whose business models lead to systematic kind of tropical deforestation over time, that they are dependent on large-scale land conversion to make money. Yeah. And that is just not sustainable in a market where uh, deforestation is increasingly an issue for buyers of forest commodities, for example. Yeah, yeah. And you can think of many other examples that are similar. Yeah. And in terms of what companies across Europe can learn from your approach to managing this risk? What would you say some of those things might be? Yeah, so we have always focused on being transparent and predictable. So our views are, as I mentioned, spelled out in these expectation documents. Boards should know what our key investment principles are, and they should know that those principles don't change you know, rapidly over time. That makes us a predictable owner, and it makes us kind of a partner for them in the long term. So that would be one thing, is, is a high level of transparency. 
On the real estate side, is just being highly selective. That has uh, benefited us, is to partner with you know, professional partners that who have a kind of a proven track record in the cities we invest. We are very focused on investing based on local expertise yeah. and being close to our market. So on the one hand, we're a sovereign fund. We're headquartered in Oslo. We don't invest in Norway. We only invest abroad. But at the same time, our organizational setup on the real estate side is to be very close to the markets we invest in and to partner with organizations that have a proven track record in those markets. And when we invest on a 100% basis in Europe, we have investment teams that are staffed by people who have deep experience in those markets. So investing with local expertise is really key to making good decisions. Yeah, yeah. And do you see an increase in your exposure to private real estate? I mean, you're at, you said about two and a half percent at the minute, which is, I mean, it's considerably less than many large institutional players, less than many sovereign wealth funds. Is that as a result, well, obviously it's partly as a result of, of equities booming over the last 10 years or so, but do you see a point where you might reach parity with other large investors? I mean, some are citing 10, 20% as now yeah. uh, in terms of their, their allocation to real assets. Right. So the, the allocation to unlisted markets generally is determined by, by our owner, right? And anchored with parliament. So this is not a decision that we... We're not going to make a decision on the podcast. No. <laughs> so we can't, we can't put it to a Twitter poll. <laughs> right. So, so as an asset manager, obviously, we invest according to the mandate we're given. Yeah. And but I, I suppose I made a point because ultimately, I mean, you are the ultimate long-term owner of assets globally, right? And actually, that would work very, very well in terms of real assets on any level. Yeah. So, I mean, what I can do is give you a flavor of the discussions around unlisted investments and the fund and why we've ended up with a comparatively lower allocation than some other pension funds that we compare ourselves with. And one is that the unlisted markets generally have a lower level of transparency than listed markets. And as I mentioned, transparency is, is a kind of a core principle of the fund. Yeah. It gives the fund legitimacy. It builds public trust. So that's been one of the concerns. The other is the higher operational cost of unlisted investments generally. You need more staff. There is simply a different mode of investing, as you know, much more specialized than listed investments. And then the third is the appropriateness of a central bank to invest in complex types of unlisted investments. So one thing is kind of office real estate, which is a kind of an established liquid market, in other types of infrastructure investment, for example, there have been concerns as to whether it's appropriate for a central bank to be in those markets. This is hotly debated. It's been uh, an issue for 15 years, and the current allocation is kind of where the consensus is. Yeah, yeah. What would you say the next couple of years looks like in the real estate sphere as we move towards better global alignment on some of these issues? Obviously, the real estate markets are coming out of a period of turmoil, and there's quite a bit of uncertainty, right? And where offices are going, where retail is going, the rise of e-commerce, etc. So we're right in the middle of all of that with our investments. If we focus on the climate risk side, I do think CREM and other initiatives are allowing the market to more accurately assess climate transition risks, in particular, in real estate markets. You will see this being addressed more systematically in acquisitions. You will see that this will be addressed in renovation plans, and it's going to be communicated much more through corporate reporting. So we're also members of the Better Building Partnership in the UK, 
which is a group of commercial landlords invested in real estate focused on sustainability. And you can see just by that network how important net zero strategies are in the real estate space. And there's a common commitment to report more on this and to assess assets and to manage assets in line with net zero targets. So that's going to be a major trend in the market. So Chris, just to bring things to a close, going back to what we were discussing just before about divestment, can you just tell us about your approach to ESG screening for companies looking to enter the benchmark and what that really looks like in practice for different businesses and what they should be thinking about from reporting and and from an investment perspective? Yeah, sure. So as I mentioned, we're essentially an index fund. And that means that we are expected to invest in all companies in the index. Every year, FTSE adds roughly seven, eight, nine hundred companies to its index, right? And these are companies that then are entered to the fund's benchmark and that are included in the portfolio by and large. So last year, we started looking at these companies and understanding their ESG profile. So we've introduced kind of a systematic screening of those companies using the data we have available and the knowledge we have of the countries and sectors that they operate in. And that's been a really exciting project. And what we see is, for example, a large share of the companies are Chinese companies. A large share of the companies are currently in tech and healthcare. Another share we've seen in the last year are industrials from India, Brazil, other large emerging markets. So these are companies that will obviously shape the future. There are, a lot of them are growth companies. Many of them are recent IPOs. And understanding those companies and their ESG profile is important to understanding the ESG risk of the fund as a whole. Mm. And that's going to be quite interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose these aren't companies that have got long legacies in the public markets. They're, a lot of these are relatively new businesses. Exactly. So many of them are not covered by the ESG rating agencies, for example. Many of them don't have long track records, so they don't have a lot of historical data they can provide to the market. And the companies are generally smaller, small cap or mid cap, and at least half of them are emerging market companies. There's a heightened risk among these companies, but at the same time, of course, we want to invest in them to capture growth, right? So underlying the screening is that we want to invest in a large share of these companies as an index fund and to kind of benefit from particularly recent IPOs. But at the same time, we want to take out kind of the rotten apples, the worst of the worst, based on the information we have. Yeah. So the key thing to not being a rotten apple is going to be lots of investment, the right mindset, but also the right data and the right reporting. Yeah. So we recently engaged some of the brokers to understand the dynamics of ESG disclosure in the IPO market. Why are IPOs not providing a lot of information? And there are a variety of reasons for that. But that is an area that we're going to focus on going forward is to understand reporting dynamics in that market. And of course, these companies, once they get listed and once they are enter a global index, they're going to be under pressure to report just like every other company. So in a way, we're preparing them for a future that will come. Well, let's leave it there. I mean, I think preparing for a future, I think is a good place to end. Fantastic to see you, Chris, and great to hear about all of the exciting stuff that Norges is doing and you know, really valuable insight into what is a very important global investor. So thanks again. Thanks so much for, for making the time for us at PropCast. I've been Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. You can subscribe to PropCast on Apple, on Spotify, on SoundCloud by searching PropCast. Please do leave us a review. Please do share this with your colleagues and friends. And if you'd like to suggest any guests for the future, just drop us a line. But thanks once more to Christopher Wright, Head of VSG Risk Monitoring at MBIM. I've been Andrew Teacher at Blackstock and we'll see you again soon. Take care.